Welcome to Growing a B2B SaaS. On this show, you'll get actionable and usable advice. You'll hear about all aspects of growing a business to a business software company. Customer success, sales, funding, bootstrapping, exits, scaling, everything you need to know about growing a startup and you'll get it from someone who's going through the same journey. Now your host, Joran Hoffman. Welcome back to the Grow Your B2B SaaS podcast. It is the final episode of season one. In all shows of season one, we ask our 20 guests the following question. What kind of advice would they give SaaS founders growing to 1 million ARR? So this is one more summary episode where we combine all the answers on that specific question. If you're not there yet, make sure to listen to our previous episode where we did the exact same thing, but then how to get to 10K MRR. Because when growing beyond 10K MRR, you will run into new kind of challenges, which you will learn by listening to the answers of our guests. Before the guests start talking, I will let you know who it is and which episode. This way you can go and listen to the full episode if you want to hear more. For now, have fun. We started off season one with Peter Loving, where we chatted about UI and UX. Often with those companies, it can be that there have been areas where inside the product, user flows or interactions could be improved. And even much later than 1 million ARR, you could have bigger problems coming into the product because over time, you're always building, you're continuing to build and build and build. And you're adding to your feature set, you're adding to your navigation. So sometimes you get problems like the navigation becomes a bit messy or it's not grouped very logically or features get hidden. So we'll we'll look at what the product already does well and we'll look at, okay, where are the problem areas that we can improve? And um, if we improve those, will they make a big impact? And so then we're, you know, we're iterating on, on improvements, you know, really improving the product. One example I can give of this that I've seen happen a few times now is that once a feature set gets quite busy you know there are some features that were launched in the beginning and as new features have been introduced sometimes on an existing navigation there's not a top level menu item that perfectly accommodates one of these new features so they can get hidden or put somewhere else and over time that's a problem that grows gets bigger one thing that we've seen happen is that in settings menus there have been some very very valuable features hidden in a settings menu for the for you know the top level navigation so we'd say hey your users really value these features but they're not easy to find and some don't even know about these features so let's rethink the navigation pull some of these features out promote them in in the navigation more clearly and in other areas in the product and help users activate onto these features. So it can be things like that. It can be things like that. There's always there's always issues that occur in products over time, and there's there's plenty of things that can improve the product both for existing and for that new user experience. So we're, the, the the practice changes to looking at you know I mentioned earlier the biggest pain points, what are the biggest pain areas, and what ones can have the biggest impact. We're looking for those, and we're working through. In episode two, we talk with Mike Dry regarding customer success. As you get higher and higher on the on the revenue threshold that you just mentioned there, I think the more important it becomes to have really good processes. Is it it's a tough dividing line between what how much is too much? You don't want to create a situation too early on in your company when you are st- you still need to be scrappy to succeed. You don't want to create an environment where there's a there's a document for everything because it somehow it just stops people from thinking. 
in the same way that they did before. And you need that creativity. So I'd say you want to try and dance on that line of enough process to really make sure that people can be happy and they can have autonomy in their roles, but not so much that you almost stifle the creativity that people had before when they had to be a little bit scrappy. So as you go further up, I think process becomes that much clearer. Same thing for departments and size of departments and how many people should be helping with a particular thing. Do you need a separate support team and CS team? Do you need a, an account management team? I think on that journey, what we said before, 50K, 10K, 50K to a million, somewhere along that journey, you're going to have those conversations with yourself. Do we need an account management team? Do we need more support people? Do we need a separate team in a separate country to take care of different time zones, for instance? I think I would advise wherever you are on that journey to start thinking slightly further over the hill. Again, I, I, I think you can be realistic, but optimistic. If the things that you're doing now turn out to be really successful and you do hit these milestones that you no doubt have ahead of you at the moment, what are those people going to need from you? Do you need those people now? Is there, is there something that you are going to put in place a year from now, maybe? If you brought it forward, you'd be a more successful business. And I think it's just that it's just that kind of long-termism. When you start to get up into those figures where you know that the business is going to be here in six or 12 months, you can start to think, okay, what are the long-term kind of pillars I want to put in place so that we can be a more successful business down the line? Because what a lot of people report as the company grows is you have those growing pains and usually what those growing pains are is like the business is changing so rapidly we can't keep up and the way to maybe overcome that a little bit is to bring forward some of that change in a manageable way with clear processes reporting and everything else in episode three we talk with evan weber regarding affiliate marketing it always helps if you have someone dedicated to outreach because they could be spending their days and their weeks just reaching out. Hey, I found you on LinkedIn. We really want to work with you. This is how we do it. And they could be re they could be sending invites with a message attached, invites with a message attached on LinkedIn, and then following up with those people. They could be, you know, get, finding their emails and sending them emails. They could be finding other companies and they could be, you know, offering a partnership, you know, proposal to them. Um, let's talk about it. Listen, a dedicated person is should always be 90% on outreach and uh, business development. If you can put a full-time person on it, that's the best possible scenario, if not multiple people. But if you can only do 20 hours a week, to, to, you know, that person should be reaching out for 20 hours a week. If you have revenue, then, you know, you can devote that person to it. So that's what I would say when you, when you're ready to, you know, when you have the money to hire a full-time affiliate manager slash facilitator, that's what you should do. You should hire someone and 90% of what they do should be outreach and business development and seeing how many partnerships they can get and affiliates they can get through the strategies we just talked about. So I would, that's what I would do. I'll hire one full-time person. And then once that person pays for themselves, hire another person. And you could literally have five to 10 people as affiliate managers just reaching out, pulling in affiliate relationships and partnerships. In episode four, we chatted with Gavin Tai regarding sales processes. There's a point that it comes where the founder becomes a hindrance. You know, they slow the process down, they become a bottleneck. So what we need to do is start capturing that information as quick as we can. Like you think about those ROI calculators or that the problems that exist in the market, both indirect and indirect, and create a framework that they can add to, to bring other salespeople into and, and slowly bring them along the journey. So if we think about a sales process, here is where you close. Founder is always going to want to be involved in that later part for at least a long time. So bringing in a junior person or salesperson, so their skill set moves through the pipeline and, and gets closer to running a whole sale. But transferring that tacit knowledge of the founder is really critical. And then having a system and processes and a framework in place where everyone can add to that body 
body of knowledge and then recognizing where you are in the market and then doubling down, adding to the framework and scale, scaling slowly. Don't bring on 10 salespeople. Go, right, we're ready to scale. Bring on one, then two, that works out. Then bring on another couple. Then you just have momentum momentum will grow quicker yeah and it will make things a lot easier as well you can onboard the salespeople as you would like uh, if you can hire five or ten at the same time it is going to be more difficult to maintain quality as well Co- correct and you've got to make sure that they follow that process that you work really hard to create it's when it gets diluted and people go now nah, i'm not going to do that this one little thing i don't think i need to do it in this particular opportunity but sometimes that one action can you can follow an opportunity for Let's just say you're engaging with someone. You decide, I'm not going to engage with procurement or legal this this stage. I'll wait right to the end. You get to the end and you go, I wish I had done that three months ago. I just wasted so much effort. In episode five, we talked with Antti Sukanen regarding product-led growth. I would say that the customer success role probably builds up a lot more when you're going. Not, I would say that they're kind of supporting your PLG more with that. So, so maybe that's the advice I would, I would say that because uh, I have no experience building a SaaS company on that. I have built an, a manufacturing company to almost 10 million, but that's a different animal there, but uh, no PLG there. But uh, if I would say at this point, I maybe the customer success side, getting clear processes and scalable processes because you are building a big company. You want those processes to be really scalable from, from here to, to the, the, the bigger picture and another countries and another go-to-market strategy. In episode six, we chatted with Andrew Davis regarding go-to-market. I think the advice here really changes based on the type of business. So there are some businesses that can get to a million ARR off one or two contracts if they're selling something quite complicated into very large enterprises. And so the, the advice would be very different there than it would be for a, perhaps a product-led founder with you know a price point around $1,000 a month or $100 a month who's clearly got a lot of customers by the time they get to a million ARR. So for that first you know, segment of the business, for the segment of businesses who have you know, got something that's expensive, we were in that case with IDEO. So our ACV was 200, 300K, and then we could upsell from there. So we had some clients that were you know, seven, 800K by the time we exited. If you're growing towards a million ARR and you've got a couple of initial customers, then really it's about making sure that yes, you're listening to everything those customers are saying, but that you're building for the market segment you want to go after rather than bespoke building for those two or three customers. So it's always about listening and learning, but you as a founder have got to make the decision on whether you are building some customized kind of thing, this customized monster, this Frankenstack for that specific customer and their needs, or whether you're keeping an eye on what the bigger market opportunity is. And then, you know, if you are at a lower ACV and therefore a million ARR takes you know many tens of customers, hundreds of customers, Customers, maybe even thousands of customers, then really at that point, you've got a proper business. And what you need to be doing now is thinking about instrumentation and scale and optimization and making sure you've got the right data coming into your stack so you can make smarter decisions as you scale going forwards. In episode eight, we chatted with Alexander Thoma regarding growing a network. I think people, especially as you're growing and scaling, is going to be a key thing, right? If you, if you keep hiring the wrong people or if your team is not good enough or if you t- hire a team of C and B players, it's going to be a struggle to get to 10 million ARR. Hire a team of A players, and it is possible on a budget and bootstrapping, you know, you, you, you find these people, right? They're going to help you kind of get there. So I think that's one thing. Another thing, nobody did it on their own. Nobody ever figured out how to get to 10 million or 100 million on their own. So build a, a support network to help you get there. Connect with the Stefan Smolders of this world, right? 
because they're doing it or have done it. And there is this, like, while, while there is not one size fits all playbook, building a repeatable, profitable uh, business, there is a kind of formula to do it. So you've got to find out those that have done it uh, and that will kind of save you time and money. You know, just building out this sort of like support network, you know, I, I think is key, right? Otherwise you could do it, but you're just going to make it harder for yourself. You're going to make lots of mistakes. You're going to grow slowly. Uh, and that will be, I, I think, super key. So if, if you're learning from people that have done it, and this is where like a lot of venture, back, like beyond, if you look at venture capital, why do people raise venture capital? They get a lot of money. They That helps extend the runway. That helps them build the team that they need. But also within that network, they get to speak to VCs, for instance, that either have seen, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of companies that have been successful, and then they just share that information. This is how you need to do it. And that kind of gives them this advantage. And it's up to like, they can say, how how do you do it? And then you need to execute against against that. And then they can also like connect you again, like into people that have done it and speak to people and, you know, helps you build out that network. So sometimes with being a bootstrapper, sometimes the harder thing is that you don't have this support network that, that VC companies get. But what you do get obviously as a bootstrapper is retain the equity and control and the clock isn't ticking as much. Like you've got to hit these milestones. You've got to hit these milestones, right? You don't have the risks of being fired from your own company uh, as such. So a lot of pros and cons, right? But it's a, it's a, a different conversation. In episode nine, we chatted with John Oswald regarding content strategy. Once you've passed that like a million error, by the way, you can you should still invest in middle to bottom funnel, um, even even when you pass those levels. Is once you have like a business, right? Not a startup. Once you have a business that is generating revenue for you, you know your customers. What you need to do is this is something that I do quite often is I would survey my customers and try to understand like what comes after me, right? So just step back. Don't only focus on the problem that you're solving, but focus on the problem if you're old is that comes after you or before you, right? So if I'm a tool that is helping you to put all your KPIs in one place and my audience, like my ICP is, uh, let's say venture capitals, right? They want to keep all their portfolio companies metrics there. And my tool is helping with that. So because I do my customer research, I know that the next problem they're trying to solve is how do I send this report to my investors? And then maybe you start building features around that and you write content around that. Don't just focus on what you're solving today. Focus on what comes after you, what comes before you as well, both in terms of features and product and also the content marketing side of things as well. In episode 10, we chatted with Stefan Smolders regarding how to bootstrap to 7 million ARR. Yeah, the, the mistake I made was from that moment on that I was not even thinking about the structure and the processes and, and not, not even working in a CRM. So I think if you leverage the ideas I, I share to reach 10K, you have a lot of opt-ins, you have a lot of people. You you actually need to get them in your ecosystem. That's what you that's what you want, right? And to get them in your ecosystem, it can be with systems. So, for, for, for example, a CRM or an, an, an sort of a marketing automation tool to round up this question to focus on building out a community in a safe place to put people in your ecosystem, to ask a feedback, to experiment with different strategies, with tactics, to involve them in maybe features based on their input you're going to build uh, or pivot with as a next step. Uh, simply by creating a community and implementing more systems to, which will help you to do a better job on a systematic marketing approaches. In episode 11, we talked with Katja Riebova regarding customer-led growth. For the 1 million ARR, so at this stage, you should have a really great 
pool of customers to run full-on research projects on. And this is where you're probably running into issues of how, how do I grow in a predictable way? How can I influence my growth in predictable ways? So this is where a full framework will come in very handy. So this is where you would run your customer research. You would identify the customer jobs to be done. You would need to prioritize one to solve at a time, map them on the map <laughs> to, to see, to find those opportunities and to, to solve specific problems that you have. And this is where the cross team communication and alignment is something that's going to become a challenge. So if you, if we talked about that very early stage company who started implementing bits and pieces of customer research, if you grew to trying to get to 1 million AR, you already have the seeds of customer centricity that you just need to double down on. And I think at this point, if we talk about research specifically, one piece of advice I would give is that don't let it be owned by one specific team. The research is something that, that will be used by everyone. Marketing, product, sales, customer success, they will all benefit from having that research, but don't put it all in one team to run it because when it's shared, it, it's more likely to, to be helpful across teams when it, when, again, when it's not owned by just one team. In episode 12, we talked with Robin Singvi regarding how to hit number one on Product Hunt. First thing I'll say is that good on you for sticking it out, going from 10K to a million dollar AR. That's something to be proud of. But again, I think, okay, if we look at product hunt as the sort of the pivot here, as you approach a million dollar AR, I think product hunt then becomes a fantastic platform for refining your go-to-market strategy, building your brand awareness or reinforcing it, right? And maybe even building a, essentially a long tail of leads and prospects in your funnel. Right. Of course, like at, even at this stage, right? Yes, you're at a million dollar AR, but it's important that you have a solid sort of go to market in place for your launch and a process, like I said, for managing and nurturing the leads that come to the platform. Because at a million dollar AR, what you really want is that fuel to take you to 10 million, five million, whatever it is. So using product hunt well and using that initiative or that milestone as a stepping stone to further refine your processes, I think can be really powerful. In episode 13, we talked with Ellen Gleason regarding how to win in a crowded market. I think at that stage, you're ramping up your sales and marketing efforts. So you're switching from being more product centric to probably investing a bit more resourcing in sales and marketing. And again, going back to the playbook, you got to try and decide which of those two even though they complement each other and you ideally would run two of those, but which of those two is the more likely to give you most results, right? So you're probably bulking up your teams at this stage, but you can't fully resource sales and marketing. So it's picking from the early stages, which had you some success with. The other thing is I'd kind of, I'd still use freelancers quite a lot. I'm a great believer in freelancers. I think that that's still not a big enough kind of journey to say, actually, let's resource up fully across the different functions. So that was one of the kind of raison d'etre for my previous consultancy business was that most chief marketing officers in Europe were very expensive and they were hard to find. And companies that would have fit into this bucket could have got away with two or three days a month, having someone like me come in, set strategic direction, set decisions around prioritization, set decisions around resourcing without needing to put a full-time CMO into situ, in situ and obviously accelerating your cash burn. So there are some of the things I think that are worth thinking about. 
In episode 14, we talked with Casey Hill regarding demand generation strategy. So from zero to one, now I actually would go back to one lever really well done, right? One thing I've seen from the vast majority of fast growing startups is they nail one channel really well. For us at Bonjoro is podcast guesting. For other teams, it might be partners, it might be SEO, it might be affiliate. There's a ton of different ways. But really, once you get to that 1 million range, you want to have one channel that is recurring and you can do that has momentum with it. I strongly encourage people to have organic long tail channels here. Although I will say, to be fair, I've worked with a lot of startups that have succeeded and paid. So I don't want to tell people that you can't do it with paid. And sometimes VCs actually been like paid because they think of it as like it's more scalable. But whether whatever direction you go, zero to one to me is all about that one channel that you have it nailed. I think that will really help you as you make that next leap from one to 10. In episode 15, we talked with Fabian Mum regarding how to launch on Product Hunt. Basically, with Bigger Base, they want to have product of the day, even maybe product of the month, because it's a really nice recognition. So then for them, launch on the first day of the month, target to be product of the month, make some marketing buzz about it that you have this recognition. Also, because you should have a considerable marketing team, you can consider to launch micro product. So you can launch every six months, one specific product, but you can easily launch other products. Product and define a product as one specific URL on the website. So if you're making a sub landing page with like a really good quality white paper, for example, you can be launching it as a micro product and, but he gets some exposure about it. In episode 16, we talked with Rob Harlow regarding sales prospecting. As you start to reach those higher ARR levels, churn naturally becomes a bigger challenge because as a percentage, the number of people churning, and you need to know that you're predictably bringing enough customers in every single month that you can grow the sales team, grow that number, and that you're not going to plateau your overall growth. In episode 17, we talked with Tom Dobber regarding creating predictable revenue. Assuming that's... Uh, on that road, on that journey that you do the 10K, so you do about 120K per year, the product market fit is starting to come. What you then want to do is, okay, the more and more you get to that product market fit and the more and more customers you get, start figuring out what makes you remarkable. And often use what you think is not what your customers think. So ask your fans. And they will come up and they will describe it in different words. And it is those words that are really that, that really matter. Who are your fans? Who are those customers you should interview? Customers that are prepared to pay a premium for you. The customers that when you spoke to them, when you were selling to them, wasn't even feeling like selling, but they didn't even come up with the word discount because they saw the value and it was almost like sign fast that might change their thinking. They might up their price for us. Then when you got the product market fit and you find out, found out where is your ideal customer profile, not market profile, adjust your price to the point where the right customers will think about it for five seconds. Okay, it's a lot of money, but it's worth it. So many SaaS companies start with pricing because they look at the competitor and they go 10% lower, leaving a lot of money on the table. And your customers will just say, first of all, you're my number one on the list. It's the product that I'd love to work with and you're the cheapest. That cannot be more of a desire factor, of course, but of course, you need to, you need to get to that 1 million fast as well. 
and then focus there. I would say niche further down because that's what it's all about. Now you, the more you customers you get, you start to know who you're really for because you, you feel it there. And weeding out those customers that might be able, you might be able to help with your functionality, but those will, that the customers where you actually already upfront know they will never become a fan. If a customer doesn't become a fan, it's an annoyance. Because what they do is keep moaning about the gaps. If it does this, then it will be, as I would expect it. But your R&D department is going to be loaded with the requests that are about gaps without being able to focus on what really matters. And when you fix the gaps, they won't even say thank you because, you know, it should have been there in the first place. And these are the customers that are going to churn the easiest at the end. Maybe a couple of open doors, but I see the day-to-day -day challenges. And it, I think it is also, it's got to do with the, also how the VC market has worked over the last couple of years. In episode 18, we did a live on stage podcast interview at the SaaS Leaders Summit in Berlin with Torben Schulz regarding product strategy. I think depending on what you're doing at this point and depending on whether you're bootstrapping or whether you are a venture capital funded, you might have a team of between eight and, and maybe 30 engineers or so. So you have a bit of a larger team. I think then it becomes more important in product to build more of a process that makes sense. So we, for example, we follow kind of the agile philosophy at Rose. But again, we are not a fan of super heavy process. So we don't follow all the meetings. We're actually cutting a lot of meetings for engineers from from the Scrum methodology, for example. And, but we have, for example, our quarterly roadmap prioritization. That is very important for us. So we have different teams that are comprised of engineers, designers, product managers, and engineering managers as well. And there are usually three people across those disciplines that are what we call the cell leadership. The cell leadership has the task. So we publish an updated product strategy at every kickoff of our quarterly process. And then they have essentially two weeks to present their challenges for the coming quarter. These three people in collaboration with the entire team. And then we use two days in which we as founders and as a management team all together challenge the roadmap for the next quarter of this, what we call cell leadership of these three people. And at the end of those two days, challenges for the next quarter are well described. It's set in stone. Obviously, if the world changes, then we also adapt within the quarter. But this is, for example, the process that we're using, and it's served us quite well. You don't have to do exactly how we do it. You can opt for every six weeks, then obviously a lighter process, or you can do it every six months. But I think there should be like a cadence of planning that will enter what you're, what you're doing. In episode 19, we talked with Julia Dragici regarding multi-channel marketing tracking. If you go to one million, congratulations, yay. <laughs> and I assume you already have multiple channels out there, multiple acquisition channels in place. And I also assume you have tracking in place. If not, do it. You cannot get there without tracking. I'm guessing it's good one time, two times, but not so many. So what I would say is, again, affiliate program, if you don't have one, use it. It's very powerful. And about tracking, I think at this stage, you already have processes in place. What you can do is like network a lot with like-minded people, 
focus on that, learning from their mistakes. I know this is not related to tracking, but I think it's a good advice. And yeah, focus on your team by this stage. I will focus on the team and make sure like the team knows, every team member knows how important it is for the final goal, what's its place in that big picture, because the team is like the most important at some in the final episode of season one, we talked with John Wright regarding affiliate marketing. Make sure you're efficient in everything. Spend time looking at your costs. If you can save money, that's contributing to your bottom line where that's money that you can spend slash invest. Measure everything. I know in our journey about just getting started and building our own backend, yeah, we use other third-party tools to really see what's happening, whether it's churn or understanding retention and the value. There's Stripe is pretty cool. Nathan Latka's uh, Founder Path, that one's a nice one. And there's lots of them. Paddle has really cool tools. There's just a lot there. So the more you measure, the more you can really understand what's working, what's not working. And I think this helps you stay focused in the right sense where a lot of people think this is important. I just need more money in the bank. Yes, that's true, but really know your numbers. I would also say if you think about hiring fractional consultants, that's very valuable. Like we would all love to have a $5 million budget where we can hire the full-time, the CFO, the, the CMO, and all those things. But there's a lot of people out there that do amazing work and they are consultants. And you have to remember that because they get to work with so many different people, that their skill set goes up. Yeah, they're not cheap, but they're also not going to cost you a full-time or a part-time employee. And there's a lot of these things that you can do that's part-time. We're actually going through this right now where someone's helping with our customer success and pricing. So it's, it's perfect to be able to do these things. I'd yeah. say you've already mentioned it and it's network with other SaaS owners. It's we're not always going to have the same journey or everything's going to apply to us, but you can always learn from someone else and they might have a different take on it. And then of course, ask for help, ask for help and network. So ask it from SaaS founders. And I do think that for us, when we went the roots of looking for investors, they bring a different type of challenge or thought process to looking at a company. And I think for us having every single angle covered, it was very valuable. It's, I can't think of having to sacrifice any one of the three of talking to customers, talking to other SaaS founders, and then talking to investors. I would hate to pull any one of them out. So it all really comes down to asking for help. And some of these investors have been really cool where they're saying, if you ever just want to pick up the phone or just schedule a call, I'm here. It's like, I'm not charging. I'm not asking for equity. There's a lot of people out there that they genuinely want to help. And I think they're smart about it because they know that, hey, if you wanted to pick them as an investor, they've won you over. And those are people that I respect. Thanks again for listening to the summary of season one. Make sure you're going to listen to season two because we have some really good guests lined up for season two. For now, have a good one. You've been listening to Growing a B2B SaaS. Yoran has been ahead of customer success before founding his own startup. He's experiencing the same journey you are. We hope you've gotten some actionable advice from the show. And we hope you had fun along the way. We know we did. Make sure to like, rate, and review the podcast in the meantime. To find out more and to hook up with us on our social media sites, go to www.getreadiness.com. See you next time on Growing a B2B SaaS.